The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to get an update on gasoline prices and the energy market. I'm pleased to introduce two special guests today. Joining us from Opus, the energy data and analysis company recently acquired by Dow Jones. Please welcome Denton Sinkegrana, Chief Oil Analyst at Opus, and Tom Kloza, Global Head of Energy Analysis at Opus. Denton and Tom have been tracking the gyrations in the oil market, where prices recently shot up to $137 a barrel. Today, West Texas Intermediate, the U.S. benchmark crude, is up about 7%, selling for 101 a barrel. Meanwhile, gasoline prices in New Jersey, where I live, are well over $4 a gallon. That really hurts. Welcome, Denton and Tom, and welcome to the Dow Jones family. Thanks, Lauren. Pleasure to be here. So let's start with the big picture. What has led to the recent volatility in energy prices? Is it Russia's war on Ukraine or some other factors? Tom, why don't you get us started? Yeah, I would say there there were some things that preceded this. We always thought that this would be an expensive year because in last year, we were using more oil than we were producing uh, now. And we know that we were going to be rebounding from COVID times with a lot of pent-up demand. What we didn't know is that Russia was going to invade the Ukraine. And there's all sorts of estimates of how much crude oil has been lost or how much refined products have been lost. Right now, the estimate is about 2 million barrels a day. Last week, it was much more than that. And that's one of the great explanations for, for why we went up to 139. So it's a roller coaster ride. As Lauren mentioned, we're up about $8 on crude right now, 40 cents on diesel, more than 20 cents on gasoline. So we kind of scheduled this. It's like scheduling uh, a, a conference in Pompeii for the lava season. What a great metaphor. <laughs> so crude prices have come off their highs, but gasoline prices remain fairly elevated. What do you think accounts for this divergent behavior? We'll start with Denton this time. Yeah, again, it, it takes some time for these price moves to, to work through the system. And it be, gets back to the whole rocket and feather theory. Uh, prices obviously shot up uh, pretty quickly, and they dropped almost as quickly as they shot up. We're getting a violent bounce off of those lows that we saw earlier this week. So that that kind of move is is the the move to the downside is still working its way through the system. So I think retail prices are going to drop some between now and the end of the week, but you know that that move may be a little bit more tempered considering what's going on today. Yeah, I, Tom, I, you I, mentioned. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I would add something to that, Lauren. Uh, okay. the, the wholesale prices are really a virtual market. It happens in real time. And the retail market, it's a little bit like watching the Olympics a couple of days later. So there is this time lag, but this is unprecedented volatility that we're seeing from day to day right now. 
You mentioned some changes in the structure of the market when we were speaking the other day, changes in liquidity and margin requirements that are affecting energy traders. Tom, how would you explain those to our audience and how are they playing out in the markets right now? Well, remarkably, even as physical oil market has gotten larger, you know, touching about 100 million barrels a day, the futures and options markets have gotten smaller. And open interest, which is a measure of the participation in those markets, has dropped to the lowest levels we've seen since 2016. So the less participants you have, the more volatility you have. And Mm -hmm. believe it or not, these are incredibly liquid markets, but they're a lot less liquid than they were in the last three years. So uh, if there's gamesmanship involved, if the machines, the algorithms, artificial intelligence are at work, you could really have these dramatic swings. And that's what I believe we're seeing in March. What would make the markets more liquid? Well, what would make them more liquid is one thing would be if the exploration and production companies decided to use them again. What happened was at least three or four CEOs said, I believe my shareholders are invested in my company because they want the upside that comes with higher crude oil prices. So To a great extent, we've seen a lot of those companies no longer hedge and no longer sell into the market. So uh, some of the circuit breakers that were there before are gone. That's interesting. And what would it take for things to change? A big drop in energy prices? Well, I think if you get a big drop, you'll get more participation. I mean, if you think about it and and you have a million barrels uh, in a, a VLCC, a very large crude carrier, you know, that was costing $139 million or something like that last week. So you've got these big trading companies who are looking for some help with liquidity, almost like they're seeking sort of the world's central banks. So, yeah, cheaper prices would help with a lot more liquidity. Uh, the problem is, is that to a certain extent, the exchanges are going after the retail investor, almost like it's a DraftKings or a FanDuel right now. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So how do you two think that today's situation compares with the oil crisis of the 70s? Are we close to that? Are we a long way from that? Will we never get back to that? How would you compare it? Denton, what's your view? Yeah, I don't think we get that drastic. Uh, I do think we're in a bit of a, a bit of a crisis, but probably not that drastic from the early 70s. I do, you know, kind of equate this to what we saw in the in the rise in 2008 to, to record highs near $150 for WTI. Uh, we all know what happened after that. Prices, you know, crashed and mm-hmm. obviously there was the financial crisis after that. And the other kind of more recent time that this reminds me of is was the Arab Spring in 2012, 2013, 2014. During that time, you saw really the rise of shale producers in, in West Texas, uh, North Dakota, et cetera. It's not that we didn't know that that oil was there. It was just we've got better at getting to it. So the shell industry obviously boomed as a result of those high prices. And we're, we're, we're not necessarily seeing that this time, uh, I think, because investors in, in some of these shell companies have been burned when shell producers just go crazy when markets go to the upside and they end up crashing the market. I don't think this time around the, the whole phrase being thrown around is, is capital discipline. And we're seeing quite a bit of that, as Tom illustrated. You know, usually when prices would get up like this, they'd be locking in oil at $90, $95, well above break-even costs. And we're just simply not seeing that right now. 
So you've really anticipated my next question, which is what the U.S. can do to ease the energy shortage. Some people say drilling is being held back by environmental policy. Others say drillers are reluctant to increase production precisely because shareholders are demanding greater capital discipline. What's the reality and where do we go from here? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of all of the above. And also, you know, one thing to consider is just like everything else, like the grocery stores, like uh, retailers, et cetera, there's labor shortages in the fields and, uh, you know, getting people to work in the fields, equipment, et cetera. There's, there's a lag on that as well. And again, it's one of those things where you can't just snap your fingers or wave a magic wand and more oil starts to starts to show up. It takes several months for those wells to be drilled, uh, bring the, bringing the oil to market. So there's a couple different things. Yes, environmental policy has kind of made some of the producers shy away from from, from producing more oil, as well as the investor pressure to uh, for their return on capital. Tom, what's your view? Well, you know, it's interesting because Dan mentioned some of the materials and the labor costs. The other thing is uh, you need a lot of sand for fracking. Mm-hmm. And they've been talking sure. about shortages of, of sand for fracking. It's probably very bullish for Wisconsin because my understanding is that's where a lot of the sand comes from and I have no idea why. Uh, But I would say the other problem here is that the Biden administration and the oil and gas industry are like the Hatfields and the McCoys. There's really no compromise and they're digging into harder positions. Oil and gas companies are saying, oh, it's the leases or the Keystone XL. It's not. Uh, But they're also saying that, you know, basically your policies would uh, basically put us out of business within the next decade or, or so. And the Biden administration keeps doubling down and sort of demonizing the oil business as opposed to sitting down and having a diplomatic effort to say, we really need your oil right now. And maybe we can come up with a backstop so that if there is another bust, you have some protection. So uh, they're both responsible and they both gravitated to the extremes, as is the want of most people in politics these days. That's for sure. So let's say, though, that the finger pointing stops, the Hatfields go home, the McCoys go home, and drilling actually increases. How long would it take before there's some sort of an impact at the pump? Well, I think I think that the oil companies will be seduced by these prices. Uh, Denton mentioned break even, and we can argue about break even. But in the United States for shale, it's about twenty five dollars a barrel, somewhere in that neighborhood to bring it to, to the market. So these are very, very rewarding numbers. And I think ultimately there'll be enough private companies and public companies who put more rigs out there. Uh, The problem is that doesn't mean much in a hundred million barrel uh, a day market overseas. And it doesn't mean much if Russian oil continues to sort of not make it to the market. We will see more more oil coming from places like Guyana, maybe a million barrels a day before the Interesting. Uh, is over in South America and the United Arab Emirates, which has a lot of oil in their pocket. The difference is, is in shale, it's short cycle. Maybe you can bring it in six or seven months. And for deep water projects like Guyana, it's seven years. So you need the capital and you need to start for, let's say, 2029 production in the big fields now. Who are some of the companies drilling in Guyana? ExxonMobil and Hess are the partners in Guyana. And it's really a story that the press isn't hearing much about, but they're finding tremendous amounts of crude 
uh, offshore Guyana there. Uh, they're already pumping it. We're already using some of it in the United States, but I wouldn't say it's going to increase exponentially, but it's one of the most promising areas uh, in the world right now. I think you're right. The press is not hearing much about it. So thanks for sharing that with us. Denton, a question for you. Doesn't high oil prices make it possible to both drill and produce and reward shareholders? I would think you could do both at these prices. At these levels, you would think you can. Uh, again, maybe maybe it's a philosophical differences between you know the, the heads of these production companies as well as the, the Biden administration. But again, there is that uh, that kind of equilibrium right now where you can produce at, at profitable levels, return some capital to, to shareholders, return dividends, etc., and and really you know kind of kind of please both sides of the both sides of the coin. Uh, I guess as far as you know, looking at individual companies, I, I would think the, the companies that have the most exposure to, at least in the U.S., to the Permian, where there's quite a bit of uh, oil production already, based on the Energy Information Administration data, uh, they're, they're producing at, at record levels there to begin with. So that that's where kind of the most prolific, productive, mm-hmm. um, and any other you know kind of P word you want to use on on uh, production there in uh, West Texas, the Permian is is the place to be. So Tom mentioned Guyana as a potential alternative in a number of years. In the more recent term, if the U.S. is not going to drill baby drill, as they say in the industry, where is more supply going to come from to keep prices from exploding upward? I think we'll still be getting quite a bit from Canada. Uh, That's obviously a a good match. Uh, Also, as far as the quality of that crude, they they make a lot of the, the heavy crude that can run in U.S. refineries that others may not necessarily have the the equipment and the and that complexity to be able to break down uh, those, those those molecules basically and turn them into refined products. So uh, I think more from Canada. Obviously, there's there's quite a bit coming from Canada already. They're our largest uh, exporter to the U.S. to begin with. So I think relying more on Canada uh, would obviously be a good thing. You you know, Laura, you, you Lauren, you. you wonder about venezuela venezuela actually has the greatest proved reserves in the world right now now it's it's not you know particularly an easy crude to bring to market but you know i remember back in 2002 when chavez was in and really when things started to fall apart and who would have thought that 20 years later uh we don't see any venezuelan oil making it to the united states so I know there's an effort to uh, have some sort of rapprochement with the Maduro government there. And I would I would look at that as a possible black swan event that might happen that might be a game changer down the road. That would be fascinating and kind of change the geopolitical picture in this hemisphere. It would. What about, what about Iran? Where where do their oil exports stand? Well, uh, they're sanctioned by the United States and a lot of other countries right now. And if we were having this conversation three weeks ago, I would say uh, I would bet on seeing more Iranian oil in the second quarter. Uh, After some of the military strikes uh, that Iran was back recently, I think the talks have fallen apart. The fact that Russia is in there is almost an intermediary. I think that at least for the first half of this year and maybe the second half, we have to forget about more Iranian oil coming out. So what about the outlook for Russian oil and gas? 
it's been blocked in many places. Where's it going? Who's buying it? How are they paying for it? And will it come back on the market at some point? Well, Tom, I, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, obviously the United States has sanctions. There's still some oil on the way from Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, they were not a big supplier to the United States uh, of crude oil. Uh, and they had some very gnarly stuff that could be turned into gasoline and diesel at a nice profit. And that's not going to make it here anymore. Not a big deal for the U.S., uh, but it's a big deal for the world. I have to tell you, I don't know how much Russian oil is going to be lost. Again, the estimates are moving. You've got people estimating a million barrels a day is not making it to market now. You've got some estimates of four million barrels a day. You've got banks, financial institutions, trading companies, national companies, or whatever, refusing to do business with them. You know, China appears to be the winner right now, and they're going to get cheaper crude. And some of the other people that are buying Russian crude are buying it at discounts of 30 or $35 to the barrel. But it is absolutely uh, the most unpredictable thing that I've seen in my career, uh, you know, over 40 plus years. And to that point, at some point, China, India, some of the some of the names of countries that have been put out there as, as buying some of this, this uh, Russian crude oil, at some point, you know, they're going to say, we can't take in anymore. And that's when Russian oil production gets shut in. Uh, mm -hmm. The refineries will probably slow down because there's no outlet for their refined products as well. So at some point, they're going to say, "Hey, enough's enough. We can't we can't take it anymore." So that's going to leave Russia, you know, with with a with some hard decisions to make with their oil and gasoline industry. <clears throat> Makes sense for sure. So I want to switch the conversation now to investing. And the energy sector has largely been shunned by U.S. investors for a number of years. I think it was down to about 2 or 3% of the S&P 500 at one point. This year, of course, the stocks are much more popular. Do you think it's a good time to invest in the sector? And if so, what is the best way to invest? Well, I, I would say that on the E&P side, there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, the Biden administration did basically uh, come out and seek decarbonization and look to put a lot of companies out of business if they don't uh, find a way of sequestering carbon or managing carbon. You know, managing carbon is clearly going to be one of the big, big growth industries. Uh, there's other sectors that are okay. Refining is good uh, at the moment. I think refining is going to turn next year with a whole bunch of huge international refineries in Nigeria, the Middle East and Southeast Asia come on. Uh, the sector I like and that I follow very closely is retail gasoline. You, you know about all the retail, or excuse me, the real estate explosions for for houses and stuff across the mm. country. Uh, you wouldn't believe what people are paying for gasoline stations. And, you know, under certain circumstances, like the last seven days, uh, they can really be very, very rewarding to shareholders. A lot of foreign money wants to buy into U.S. gasoline station chains. Sleepy business, you would think would be threatened by EVs down the road, but very, very profitable. So give us the names of some of these companies. Well, some of the companies would be Murphy USA, would be Alimentation Kushtard, would be Casey's in the United States. Uh, the big benefactors, I think, are the big box uh, chains. If you're Costco, your BJ's, or your Sam's Club, you really love wild prices, wild mm -hmm. to the upside and wild to the downside. 
Opus does some things with market share. And I think we, we looked at some Costco's last week and determined that they were picking up 10% of market share from some of the local mom-pa retailers. So, and, and the thing about their business model is, yeah, they want to be the cheapest in town. Uh, and they typically price their gasoline at 20 cents below competition. Well, when, when the margins are 60 or 70 cents and you do a million gallons a month, 20 cents below competition really yields some great, great returns. Uh, and you have the better returns for the frequency of the people that go inside the box and buy the 50-gallon tubs of mayonnaise. That's yep. right. Come and for the gas, get the mayonnaise. Point, you know, one sort of outside-the-box thought might be the credit card companies. You know, when you use your card to, to get gasoline, they're taking a percentage of that sale. So obviously mm -hmm. with higher prices, that percentage swipe is is uh, is really getting up there. And that is to the dismay of a lot of the, the to the convenience store industry, of course. And, you know, it, it's one of those things that as prices go up, the credit card companies do a lot better with those swipe fees. They're great inflation plays altogether. Yeah. Yeah. We love inflation. All right. What about sand companies? A couple of years ago, someone recommended a sand company at the Barron's Roundtable. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name. Are there investments today in sand companies? Are you talking about Sam's Clubs? No, sand yeah. for fracking. Well, oh, sand. Yeah. yeah. Well, from what I understand, and we don't track frack sand prices or whatever, but sand is very, very much in demand right now. And it's one of those materials in the supply chain that's short. Now, longer term, I suppose if you keep fracking, you're always going to need that sand. I have no idea what sand costs or how much profit it makes, but... Uh, you know, coming from the Jersey Shore, there's plenty of it. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know how much it costs when they kind of uh, repair a jetty or whatever. Mm -hmm. Don't think they're getting it from the Jersey Shore. <laughs> Probably not. Nice opportunity there should we need it. Yeah. So I want to close our section and then go on to listener questions. But I want to ask you, how long do you think prices will stay elevated? And do you have a long-term forecast or even an intermediate forecast for oil and gas? Then what's your view? Yeah, well, you know, Tom and I, we thought that this, this year was going to be a high price year, as he mentioned earlier. We always thought there was going to be a brush with $4 nationally, even before Russia invaded Ukraine, it, particularly in the second quarter. Do you think prices are, are going to remain elevated? They're going to remain volatile uh, going forward until, you know, there, there's some of these wild cards that we've been talking about, whether it's Russia, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's Iran, some of these wild cards sort of get kind of sorted out. So expect high prices, expect volatility. Uh, I think we remain over $4 for the, for at least the foreseeable future and probably not, we don't probably dip below that until probably later in the year, late third quarter, maybe early fourth quarter when prices tend to calm down anyway, as you have the switch from summer grade gasoline to winter grade mm -hmm. gasoline that, that comes with that, uh, that, that transition. So again, we're in for a period of, of high prices, um, and, and obviously it's, it's going to be volatile. It's going to be a wild ride. Yeah. Do you have an oil price target? I think on the crude oil side, uh, we've been looking, you know, put it this way. We're probably about 20 to $70 below where many of the big, huge investment banks think that prices are going. <laughs> uh, you know, there's some predictions there of 150 to $225 a barrel. 
And I think they're, you know, from very, very smart individuals predicting that, but perhaps with an injection of hope. We always thought this year would be on either side of $100 a barrel. You know, again, four times the cost of bringing U.S. crude, crude oil to market. Uh, didn't think that this was going to happen with Russia. But I, I think the one thing people have to, re, uh, to realize is that you will see a lot of, of scholarship that says that in order to have demand destruction, you have to go to $150 or $175 a barrel oil. But they don't take into account, particularly in the United States, but also in Canada, Mexico, is the visceral reaction that people have to these high prices, particularly mm -hmm. for gasoline. So you get demand destruction much earlier than you would think you would based on what percentage of income it is. And I think that gets lost a lot. I agree with Denton. I think we're on either side of $4. Uh, you know, most banks believe that the second half of the year could see wilder prices or, you know, they think the peak prices come in late 2022 or 23. I tend to think it comes in the next few months. And then ultimately, you see the seduction of high prices bring a lot of crude oil on in the U.S. and elsewhere. Okay. I want to go to some listener questions. They have been pouring in, and this has obviously hit a nerve with our subscribers and listeners. So the whole topic has, in fact. So we heard from Michael, who asks, can you please go over the notion that China wants to buy oil from the Saudis and yuan instead of U.S. dollars. And there has been, in fact, some discussion of oil now being priced in currencies other than dollars. What does this mean for long-term trends in the dollar? And do you think it's going to happen in the oil market? I think it means uh, a lot for the Forex traders, but I don't think it means a lot for the oil markets. And uh, I don't want to say it's much ado about nothing, but ultimately, I think the dollar is going to be the currency that most uh, oil gets transacted in. I don't mm -hmm. think that this is going to uh, uh, lead to sort of the old basket of currencies that's been talked from time to time or the yuan. Uh, there are people who disagree with that. But the folks that I trust, when we saw the headlines about Xi going to Saudi Arabia, uh, they were basically neutral on it as a factor in the oil markets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to, to that point, there's there's oil bought in other currencies. It's just converted back to dollars. So it's been it's been going on for a while now. So I, again, like Tom said, it's probably means more for the forex markets than it does for the oil markets, and not a threat to the dollar in a big way at the moment. No, I, I'd like to see real chaos and have it tied to the lira. So you'd be talking <laughs> millions and tens of millions of of, uh, of lira, and we'd all be confused by that. That'll happen when they start mining Jersey sand. <laughs> so question I'll put to Denton. Robert asks, are new technologies on the horizon that might help improve the efficiency of producers? You know, the big one that everyone is is really kind of clamoring for is uh, carbon sequestration. Uh, ExxonMobil is a real leader in, the, in that field. And I think that's probably the most near-term uh, technology that, that oil producers are going to use uh, and, and be able to capture and really kind of, quote unquote, green themselves up a little bit. I think carbon uh, sequestration is capture and sequestration is, is kind of the big, big trend play right now. Mm -hmm. 
All right, we have an auto question. I don't know if either of you can answer that, but Brian asks, why did auto companies like Ford and GM give up on hybrids when that would seem to be the logical way to bridge the gap and hedge for possible shortages in battery rare materials? Good question. I, I, you know, you might say that they've sort of uh, rushed in where angels fear to tread on this one. Uh, although I have to tell you, I've seen the Ford Mustang EV and as somebody that grew up with that, I'd like to have one at some point. Um, I think they see the writing on the wall and I think they, they realize that, uh, you know, the internal combustion engine, it may not uh, see its demise in the next 10 years, but EVs are the way to go. And that, you know, at some point there's going to be a crisscross between the battery cost and the cost of the vehicle and the uh, equivalent uh, cost of gasoline or diesel. That's coming. It's probably much truer in Europe. I think what, what we see in uh, engaging in forums is that the penetration is much, much slower. And as you say, hybrid EVs are terrific. You know, they, they really bridge the gap and don't mm -hmm. leave someone with the range anxiety of the other vehicles. Yeah, and, and to Tom's point, uh, we got to remember that the vehicle fleet turns over very, very slowly. So if I buy a new car today, I'm not, get, I'm not replacing that car, unless, of course, it's a lease, for another 10 years. So that brings us into the 2030s. So, you know, it, the internal combustion engine is, is going to be around for a while. But, yeah, I, I don't understand why the, the, the abandonment of, of hybrids, you would think you go from internal combustion to hybrids to, to electric vehicles. That would seem to be the logical progression. But, again, I think there's also the credits that come with producing electric vehicles that come from the government that, are, that may be too, too much to resist right now. There's also the cost of producing them sure. almost from scratch and where you want to allocate your capital is an issue. So but we will ask that question again on an auto call right? because it's worth exploring a bit more. Bruce asks, other than ending the war in Ukraine, what will Russia need to do to resume oil and gas supplies to Europe and the U.S.? Wow, I don't think Russia, Russian oil is going to return to the U.S. for the rest of this year, I mean, and for the foreseeable future. The bigger question, I think, and maybe this is related to that question, is you've had BP basically pull out of its uh, interest in Rosneft. You've had Exxon that's pulled out of uh, some crude oil exploration in Siberia. And you've had a number of other majors. I think the only multinational that hasn't pulled out uh, is uh, Total Energies. You really wonder, I mean, Venezuela is not producing a lot of oil right now because of the fact that most Western oil companies pulled out of there many, many years ago. And I, I don't want to make it sound as though, wow, Western engineers are the only engineers that count. But that know-how, that savvy from ExxonMobil and BP and Shell, that's going to be missed. And you really wonder if that's going to deplete Russia's ability to produce oil uh, in the next few years. And not to mention, there's been you know kind of this scramble to replace that Russian crude oil. Should... Right. This, this whole the, the invasion and tomorrow, it's going to take some time to kind of unravel that whole ball of ball of yarn that, that we've seen emerge over the last several weeks. So you had a scramble to get rid of it. And now there would be a, a scramble to, to kind of bring it back. 
and like Tom said, you know, has there been some some damage done from from the pullouts uh, of, of major companies and and the engineering and the technical know-how? So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But again, for the time being, it's it's more wild cards. A lot of scrambling. Correct. Jeff asks, other than politics, and perhaps there is an answer here or not, why is America not considering restarting the Keystone XL pipeline? Any thoughts there? I think it's politics. Mm -hmm. I think that most people don't realize there's another Keystone and that this Keystone XL became what I would say, and this is an old reference and I'm an old guy, but in Mr. Roberts, the potted plant became this frame of reference for sort of just a battle between uh, you know, some of the folks on the, on the boat. And I think that's what happened with Keystone XL. Uh, we're going to see Canadian crude getting to tidal water or a more Canadian crude with the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, and I doubt whether there can be any kind of a coalition to get Keystone restarted. And restarted really means building it and getting through the permits and making sure that you can go through federal land and through the various tribal lands and so forth. So uh, a group that I, I regularly talk to with uh, folks who are very, very conservative oil folks, they always thought that it was a non-starter, that it wouldn't make it. So yeah. I think that the Biden administration has gotten a little bit of a bum rap and the cancellation of Keystone might be something you could blame for high prices and 2023 or probably 24 on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the the Keystone XL would just kind of be, uh, I guess, a bit of a shortcut from from Canada to the to the to the Gulf Coast. Uh, the current Keystone, which is full running, uh, just makes a detour, just kind of a longer detour as it gets down to the to Cushing in the Gulf Coast. So and then there's other pipelines as well that are going to be moving uh, quite a bit of oil around. So again, like Tom said. The Keystone XL is just a, a political hot point. But there are plenty of other pipelines. Yeah. So moving on to refineries, Bascom asks, are there any refineries in the U.S. being built right now? The U.S. seems to have a refinery shortage. Is that true? And are there any being built? From the ground up, no. Uh, you're seeing refineries add capacity. You're also seeing refineries transition to producing more renewable fuels. For example, there's two refineries in Northern California, one owned by Phillips 66, uh, the Rodeo refinery, and one owned by Marathon at Martinez. They're transitioning from producing traditional hydrocarbons to renewable diesel. Uh, there's a California program called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard that makes that, uh, makes that very lucrative. You could actually, there's renewable diesel plants in Louisiana that produce a renewable diesel, put it on a train, ship it out to California and it still is profitable as that is uh, because of those LCFS credits that, that cost, you know, over a hundred dollars a metric ton. With that being said, a couple of refineries on the Gulf coast are adding capacity, a couple crude units being built at an Exxon mobile refinery, uh, some, some hydrocracking, but most of the units that are being added are those that would remove sulfur from, from the fuels, which again is, is obviously a big move. Uh, to, to help them meet certain air quality specifications. I would emphasize, too, that the United States market is not going to be a growing market for gasoline, whether it's EV penetration or not. Corporate average fuel economy standards are going to bring uh, the gasoline usage down as long as behavioral trends. 
Uh, ExxonMobil has said this. They think the growth product is diesel. This is a gap year for refiners. I think refiners should do very, very well in 2022. The problem comes in 2023 when you have big, huge refineries coming on stream in Nigeria, the Middle East, and the Far East. So uh, it's a it's a bit of a gamble. There are probably more refining assets in the United States, maybe in the mid-continent, that are going to be looked upon as destined to be stranded assets. So uh, beginning next year, not this year. This year, we're going to be very tight. And that's one of the reasons why refinery margins are going to be higher than what we've seen over previous years. But next year, it changes a bit. Which is a reminder that this is truly a global market. Yes. The energy market. So Carolyn asks, what is the forecast for supply and costs for diesel? And I'll hop on to that question and ask you also, what's the outlook for jet fuel? Well, I think one of the things that, you know, everyone talks about crude oil, everyone talks about gasoline. There's so many people talking about diesel and diesel prices are what runs the, diesel runs the economy basically. So now when you go to the grocery store, eggs, milk, you go to the, you know, Foot Locker, your Air Jordans, everything's going to be costing more because the cost to ship it to <laughs> point A to point B is, is higher. We've also had the supply chain snags. So again, I, I think the diesel market is one that really needs to be watched closely. Um, so yeah, diesel and, you know, jet fuel is, is starting to catch up. We're starting to see demand start to pick up. Uh, I think the airlines have gotten a little bit more streamlined, uh, reducing, reducing capacity, reducing uh, routes and things like that. And that's it not necessarily helps jet fuel, but you know, when you're running less flights from Newark to San Francisco, for example, remember before the pandemic, you'd get there was like one every hour. Now it's you know a couple times a day, but those planes are packed. And so every the load factor, the 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 factor, the calculation that the airlines use to to see how packed their planes are, those load factors are really high right now. So jet fuel demand is it's still behind pre-pandemic levels, but it is catching up. The middle yeah. seat is even more fun than usual. Yeah, <laughs> here's a, here's a, what I would add, Lauren. Uh, gasoline demand and jet fuel demand are very lumpy. In other words, you know, gasoline demand in the summer is maybe 2 million barrels a day higher than it is in January and February. And jet fuel demand is very, very lumpy. You know, in December, it was quite high. They talked about the, the, the transportation figures and so forth. Diesel is not lumpy. Diesel is consistently growing around the world. And if you think about it as, you know, you add a billion people in the next 14 years, what do they need? They need food. They need materials, mining, and all of these things uh, require diesel somewhere in the chain. So that's a market to keep an eye on for sure. Absolutely. I think we have to bring it to a close today, but I want to thank both of you. This has been tremendous and we must get you back on Barron's Live soon. So again, welcome to the Dow Jones family and thank you for joining me today. Thank I you. want to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, we'll explore building an inclusive Web3 and Metaverse. Web 3.0 and the metaverse turn consumers into digital community investors. What will it take to build inclusion, drive diversity, and retain cultural value in digital communities? Sounds like an interesting call. Thanks again, Denton. Thanks again, Tom, and our listeners. Stay well, everyone, and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.